Good morning. It's good to be with you. And uh, it's always a, it's always an honor to bring God's word, and uh, it's been lovely to be here over the past day and and see Madison and uh, spend some time with some of you all. So I'm going to invite you to turn to to First Peter, chapter five. We're going to read this passage, and as Pastor Matt said, we're going to be focusing on the idea of elder eldership and church government. And, uh, you know, a lot of, when we think about church government, maybe we think that it's a topic for, you know, kind of church nerds to kind of be interested in. But I want to present a little bit different of a, a view of church government as, as God's gift to us, our anxious hearts. And that's going to be really the theme as we read this. So First Peter chapter 5, this is God's word, his gift to you. And let's read it together. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, those who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be with us in this time, that you would, by your spirit, illumine this, this word, that you would be with me as I preach it, you would be with the hearers as they receive it. In Christ's holy name, amen. Nobel Prize winning economist Amartya Sin theorized that famine is extinguished in the presence of a functioning democracy. He, he came to this conclusion after years of studying famines in his native land of India, in particular the 1943 Bengali famine, which killed three million people. Back in that time, India was, had a population of 60 million, so we're talking 5% of the population. And today's population would be something like 60, 70 million people massive loss of life. And one of the things he observed is after India became its own democracy, after uh, gaining independence from rule of Britain, famine stopped. It's an interesting phenomenon, something you might find in Malcolm Gladwell's work somewhere if he were to write a book on this. But, um, but what, what Sin, Professor Sin uh, theorized was that democracy was uh, the cure for famine. Now, Sin was not saying that democracy is a panacea. He wasn't saying that democracy cures every ill. Uh, malnutrition and hunger still exist in democracies, but he was saying something very specific, that democracy is cure famine because there is a fr there's freedom of the press, uh, the freedom of the press and existence of a true opposition party because famine wasn't caused by scarcity of food, it was caused by economic and political reasons. And so he postulized that democracy was the cure for famine. 
Now, that, that hypothesis has been challenged and, and rebutted and, and, and supported in various ways over the years, but essentially what I think Sin was saying is something that we find resounding in the pages of Scripture, and that is we need government. In other words, the absence of government is not better than no government. We need government. In the absence of government, uh, the powerful and the wealthy will abuse and use the people to their own ends, and people will suffer. And this is actually also the message of the Scripture. In the book of Judges, we read this story, the cycles of, of rebellion and suffering, and people of God get to a low point. They cry out to God. He delivered, He sends the deliverer. He, the deliverer does what deliverers do. He delivers the people. And they, and they prosper because they have peace and safety. And when they get to the top of the curve again, they sin and rebel, and they go down again in suffering. And this roller coaster cycle of Judges repeats over and over and over. And at the end of the book is repeated a refrain four times in four different chapters. This refrain is repeated at the end of Judges. And there was no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Four times it is repeated. And there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, the book of Judges is about how we need government. We need leaders. The book of Judges, in fact, ends, the very last words of the book of Judges are, there was no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You might say that's the summary of the book. And the very next words of scripture from the book of Ruth are, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Maybe they should give the Nobel Prize to the Bible because it observed what sin observed many, many years before. But the book of Ruth is, of course, about the Moabitess woman, Ruth, who married Boaz and became the great-grandmother of David. And then in the very next book of the Bible, 1 Samuel, we read of abusive leadership, Eli and his sons. His sons are abusive and they are decadent. They use the people to their own ends, and Eli does not stop them. One of the lessons we learn from that is leaders who allow abuse to continue are just as evil as the abusers. God throws down that family and raises up a little boy named Samuel to rule over the people. And, of course, Samuel's job is to anoint the true king, David. Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, a large chunk of scripture is devoted to the scriptural truth that we need government. Because we are fallen, because we are sinful, we need government. No government is not better than bad government. The answer to bad government is good government. Right? As we come to the text today, we find First Peter giving his version of there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is Peter's point. Now, let me give you a little bit of background on First Peter. First Peter, we find in chapter 1, and if you've got a uh, a version of the scripture, either in codex or scroll form. That's what a phone is now these days. We've reverted back to scrolls. Um, you, can, you can flip or turn or whatever back to 1 Peter chapter 1. And there we find most, most of the letters of the New Testament are written to churches, right? 1 Peter is not written to churches. It says, Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion. He's writing to displaced people. The elect uh, exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. 
You see, the context for this is that the people of God who were living in Rome had been exiled in a persecution in, in 62 AD. All the Jews and the Christians were kicked out of Rome. This is alluded to in the book of Hebrews. So we find a couple of different places in the New Testament for, uh, that give evidence for this. But the Jews and the Christians were kicked out of Rome. At that time, the Roman Empire did not distinguish between Jews and Christians. And so they were all exiled, and they were, they were moved two seas and a whole continent away to Asia Minor, far from their homes, displaced. You, you can imagine how traumatic this would be, removed from your home in a, in a land far away where people are weird and speak differently, and it's It's hard. Just imagine all the displaced people today going out of Ukraine into places like Slovakia and Poland and Moldova, moving into the Czech Republic and some even coming to this country. Displaced persons. That's who these people were. And Peter's writing to them, essentially, that to quote the, the movie Shawshank Redemption, to get busy living or get busy dying. He's, he's giving his version of Jeremiah's letter to the exiles we read in Jeremiah 29, where Jeremiah writes to the exiles in Babylon not to simply languish and wait for the return, but to build houses and live in them. Give your sons and daughters in marriage and seek the welfare of the city, because in its welfare you will find your welfare. Peter is, Peter is writing to these Christians to organize themselves into churches. We see this in uh, chapter 5, verse 1, if you look there. Chapter 5, verse 1. It says, I exhort the elders among you. It's an interesting phrase. Biblical commentator Karen Jobes points out that this likely refers to the fact that there were people amongst them who were ordained as elders before they left Rome. And now they're all dispersed in a new place. And Peter is writing, you shepherds, you elders, I'm writing to you. So these elders are amongst the people, but they're not organized into churches. And the elders aren't doing what they're called to do. And Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Big parenthetical there. What is he exhorting them to do? I exhort the fellow, I exhort the elders among you to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So he's exhorting them to shepherd the flock. And so Peter is essentially saying that you need government. You can't thrive. The people of God can't thrive. They can't exist without government. And so he's writing to them to organize themselves so they can be at peace, so they can begin to engage in the kingdom work that he's calling to. We're going to see three things today from this passage. They, they, this is a message for those who are going to be ordained and those who already are, but it's also a message for, for everybody. So three things we're going to see. First of all, the elders are called to shepherd. Secondly, the people are called to follow. And third, everyone is called to be humble. So first, the elders are called to shepherd. Peter says, I exhort the elders to shepherd the flock of God. Now, he doesn't really explain what shepherd is. He, he, he explains it by negation. He tells them what they shouldn't do, and we'll get to that in a minute. But the, the, the metaphor of shepherd, the model of shepherd, is, has a long biblical history. 
And so the content is expressed to us in different places. And so Peter assumes that these elders know what it means to shepherd because they've been trained. They know their Bibles and they've already been trained in what it means to be a shepherd. One of the key places that we find the model of shepherd is in the 23rd Psalm. Many of us know the 23rd Psalm. But we find what a shepherd is. What is a shepherd? David writes, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. This should be familiar to most of us. And what does a shepherd do in Psalm 23? The shepherd leads, the shepherd feeds, and the shepherd protects. The first thing we see is that the shepherd feeds. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He gives good food to the sheep. The job of a shepherd is to feed. To lead the, shep to lead the sheep where they will eat good food, green pastures, not dry pastures, not dead pastures, but living green pastures with good, sustaining food. We also find this in verse 5 of Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. This is sacramental. This is the charge to the elders to shepherd by leading people to the good food of the word and the sacrament to the table and to the, to the word. The elders are to feed. And that's, that's what shepherds are to do, to get people to places where they can receive God's word. And the worship service is where we primarily do this. That's why we read the word, we sing the word, we preach the word, we repeat the word back to each other, we pray it. And then when we're done, we feast on the body and blood of Christ, consecrated by his word, the living word of God, who feeds us who feeds his sheep. And so the shepherds feed. But the shepherds also lead. Verse 3 in Psalm 23, well, actually into verse 2, he leads me beside still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness. The shepherds should lead. And, and Peter says this, that the, the, the shepherds should exercise oversight. The, the word in some translations is the shepherds uh, should uh, Basically, you exercise the role of a bishop because it's the same word. The word bishop is, comes from the word for oversight. In other words, the shepherds are to oversee. There's a management. There is a leadership principle. So it's not just leading people, teaching people, administering the sacraments. It's leading people. It's, it's management of an organization. Peter wants them to organize their churches so they can be organized and engaged to do the mission of God in Asia Minor. In order to do that, there needs to be a vision. There needs to be leadership. There needs to be a mission. So shepherds are to lead. Lead beside still waters. Waters uh, cannot, are not always still. You guys have the two lakes around you in Madison. If you've ever been to ocean and seen choppy waters, when things are rough, waters get choppy. When things are peaceful, they're calm. Leaders should lead people to peaceful, still Waters. Part of the job of the leadership of the elders is to create a peaceful, safe place for the flock so they can flourish. So lead beside still waters and lead in paths of righteousness. You know, God's kingdom work is something that the elders should be leading in. So feeding, leading, and protecting. The next thing we see David say is, is even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because your rod and your staff comfort me. Seems like an odd thing that a rod would comfort him. But why does the rod comfort him? 
The rod comforts him because the shepherd's rod or the shepherd's crook is used to protect. There's two functions of it, to ward off enemies. And David literally did this when he was a shepherd. He killed the bear and he killed the lion. The job of a shepherd is to protect from enemies. And the staff protects. David feels secure because the good shepherd fends off enemies with the staff. But the staff also disciplines. And discipline is, in its essence, protection. It is protecting the sheep from other sheep who are biting and devouring. And so David is at peace. His soul is at peace and comforted by the staff because the staff protects. Shepherds are called to protect the sheep. This is a model for shepherd in Psalm 23. Another place where we find the biblical model for shepherd is John chapter 10, Jesus' discourse on himself as the good shepherd. And one of the things that we pull out of there is a shepherd knows his sheep. He says, the sheep know my voice. I once heard a story about a pastor visiting Scotland, and he visited an actual shepherd, a person who has sheep for a living. And the shepherd sort of coyly said to the American pastor in a Scottish brogue that I may attempt if I've got the courage. Say it to the sheep, let's eat, or something like that. Let's t- tell the sheep, let's, I, I did it this morning, and I knew I wouldn't do it in the morning. <laughs> I knew I wouldn't be able to do it. Tell the sheep, let's eat, let's go eat. So the minister's like, why, why, why are you asking me to do it? And the Scottish shepherd is like, do it. So the minister says, hey, let's go eat. The sheep stand there looking at him stupidly, you know. And then the shepherd says, hey, let's go eat. Sheep jump up, and they run out the gate. And they go to the pen will they be fed. The sheep know the shepherd's voice. How is it that the sheep knows the shepherd's voice? Because the shepherd spends time with the sheep. You see, it's not just preaching. It's not just doing sacraments. It's not just leading. It is spending time with the sheep. So in the time of danger, the sheep will trust and know the voice of the shepherds. And they will run and go. What the shepherds are asking them to go and do. The sheep know the shepherd's voice. The sheep know the shepherd and vice versa. So that's, I mean, we could do a lot more work on what a shepherd is, but those are the things that I wanted to point out from Psalm 23 and John John 10. So elders are called to shepherd, and we see that Peter mainly gives his exhortation in the negative. I think this is poignant for our day because, I mean, I'm told that you guys have had reference by Pastor Matt, the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Myers Hill. So you're maybe familiar with this podcast. And in general, uh, we know that people are leaving the church in droves because leaders have have failed them, right? They, they have failed to respond well to abuse. They have exhibited uh, failures of leadership in various ways. And a lot of people are leaving the church. It's called ex-vangelical, right? And so Peter, this is a poignant word for us today because Peter mainly defines the duties of a shepherd in the negative. He tells them what they shouldn't do. And what does he say? He said, shepherd the flock, not under compulsion, but willingly. In other words, this is something, if you're going to give your life for the sheep, as John's, as Jesus says in John 10, if you're going to give your life for the sheep, if you're going to be courageous to stand up against those who are attacking the sheep, you have to, be, you have to do it willingly. If you're not willing to do it, you're not going to be courageous in the moment. And so you have to be doing this willingly. 
And perhaps Peter is alluding to the fact that he is writing, he is writing to them to persuade them to be a shepherd. And he doesn't want them to do it under compulsion. But that doesn't mean he doesn't want them to do it, elders. He, he, because there are times when in, our, in our careers and our ministry as elders that we do struggle. Times are hard. And Peter's not saying, no, give up if, you're, if you no longer have that feeling that you once had. But what he's really saying is renew your calling. When things get rough, renew your calling. Get around your fellow elders and pastors and renew your calling. Spend time in the word. Spend time with your spouse if you, if you have one and renew your calling. That is essential for an elder to do when we get in rough times. But don't continue shepherding under compulsion because you have to. You'll never be a good shepherd that way. So do not do it out of compulsion, he says. And then secondly, he says, do not do it for shameful gain. This is a major problem in the church, right? Pastors and shepherds who use the flock for financial gain fleece them. This is where the term comes from, fleecing the flock, using them to become rich and buy jets and things. But we may look at that sort of smugly uh, as you know, folks in, in, in this church and, and think, well, we know Pastor Matt doesn't have a jet. He doesn't fly off places. But let me tell you, Shepherds and elders of small churches can still use their congregations for shameful gain. And the way it takes to form, it takes the form of, of using the honor and the recognition and, and whatever else that people may give to meet my emotional needs, my, my, uh, my inadequacies. One of, the, one of the biggest temptations is that, uh, uh, is that elders will, will use the congregation in other ways that are not monetary, right? So this is still a temptation. Just because we don't have the megachurch pastor who's getting rich off the flock doesn't mean that we need to, we don't have to be on guard for shameful gain. There are other forms of shameful gain. We don't, as elders, use our flock. It's God's flock. We don't get to use God's people in any fashion. The last thing he says is not domineering. You might substitute the word abuse. The elders are charged not to domineer, not to oppress, not to spiritually abuse the people. And, and I think the fact that Peter defines this in the negative, it, it, it sets up what he's going to say, and it, and it really sets up what largely I want to say, which is the second point. And the second point will be shorter because for Peter it's shorter. It's a half a verse even. He says in verse 2, Sorry, verse 5. It's not verse 2. Verse 5a, the first half. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. It's short, but it's not simple. I mean, Peter has just defined negatively the role of elder because he knows that it is difficult to be subject to another fallen, sinful human being. It is hard to do. And I want to acknowledge that as well because Peter acknowledges it. It's not easy, especially when we've seen leaders fail in the past, especially when we've seen our own leaders fail. It's hard to be subject to other fallen people. And so even though this is a short phrase, it is still poignant. And I think that's why Peter spends so much time defining what an elder is in the way that he does, because he knows that it is difficult. 
Now, when we read here verse 5, and it says, likewise, you who are younger, we shouldn't imagine that it just refers to younger people submitting to older people. Biblical commentator Karen Jobs, who I just mentioned, she points out that the, the word for younger doesn't mean younger in age. It refers to newer. We might think of this phrase we often use as someone is a baby Christian. They've just become a Christian. They're a baby Christian. Peter, uh, Peter even uses this, this metaphor when he talks about needing the, the pure spiritual milk of the word, right? So it doesn't refer to those who are literally younger, but those who are maybe younger in the faith, and that itself is a is an image or metaphor for those who are not elders. This is what he's saying. Those of you who are not elders, be subject to the elders. In other words, follow them. You need leaders. You need government. You need to follow them. In, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is writing about the unity of the church, and he does this in terms of, of the, uh, the resurrected and ascended Christ. And he says Christ ascended with a host of captives in his train. He's victorious Christ. With a host of captives in his train and gives gifts to men. This reminds me of a Seinfeld episode. We have any Seinfeld fans in here? All right. There's a Seinfeld episode where George Costanza, he's annoyed with Christmas and the fact that he has to give people gifts at an office party. And so he decides he's going to invent this charity called the Human Fund. And he's going to send them a card that says, a generous donation has been made in your name to the Human Fund. Right? And he does this for a couple of reasons. One, he's cheap, so he doesn't want to spend the money. And two, he wants to get the, he wants to get the adulation of the fact that he donated a bunch of money to a charity, which of course doesn't exist at all. Now, if you were to get a gift like this, and one time when I was in grad school, we actually passed these out in people's boxes just for a joke. But If you were to get a gift like this, someone has made a donation in my name, you would say to yourself, probably, I would, maybe that's a confession, I would say, some gift, you know, that's not a gift. You know, so what? You gave some money to somebody else? That's not a gift to me. Maybe when we read Ephesians chapter 4, we say to ourselves, some gift. Jesus gives us gifts. What is it? He says it's apostles and prophets and pastors. That's the gift he gives to us. You know, and, and, and maybe in our hearts we think, is that the gift that he gives us? Other fallen people to, to govern us? You know, part of being a follower of Christ, and this is what Peter gets to at the end here, my third point. Part of being a follower of Christ is that we have to deny ourselves daily and take up our cross and follow him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that when we become a follower of Christ, we're called to come and die. It's not supposed to be an easy calling. And one of the callings that we have as God's people is to accept the gifts that he gives us. He gives us good gifts. And the gifts that he gives us are leadership, which we need. And so the elders are called to shepherd. The people are called to follow. And this is hard, both for the people and for the elders. It's very difficult for everybody involved. So how do we do it? Peter says, everyone is called to be humble. Why does Peter end with this call to humility? Because it is only through humility that any of us can do this, that an elder can be an elder and not commit the, the evils that Peter is laying out. 
to be an elder and do the positive things that we're called to do, to be a member of God's flock and be sub sub subject to other people who we see the faults of? How can we do it? We can only do it through humility. And so before he even finishes the verse, now that I say that tongue-in-cheek because the verses weren't added until the Middle Ages, but uh, before the verse ends, he says, younger, young, those who are younger, be subject to the elders. And then he immediately goes into clothe yourselves, all of you, referring to everybody, the elders and the people included, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. Humility is what we need to do this together. We can't do it without humility. Okay, great. Thanks, Pastor. How do we get humility? It's not something you can go and buy at the store. How do you get humility? Well, part of it, it comes through God's severe providences. Many times humility comes through the mighty hand of God, sending us through trials. And that brings humility. Right? Humility can also come in community with other people if we submit to one another. Humility comes through reading God's word and understanding just how great of sinners we are and how great the salvation of Jesus is, how we did nothing to earn it but gain everything through his righteousness. That should make us humble if we truly understand the gospel. And so we're really doing the things that are talked about in Psalm 23, going to the green pastures, sitting at the table and feeding, being with God's people. Enduring patiently the trials of life. Suffering with one another. All the one anothering of the New Testament. It's all designed to help us to be humble. But the only way we'll be able to do this, that the elders will be able to lead, that the people will be able to follow, is if we are humble. You know, we live in a very anxious time. Probably don't need to give you any stats. It probably just goes. <laughs> but I'll give you some stats, okay? Uh, the Good Faith Podcast, David French and Curtis Chang, uh, report that 63% of college students report overwhelming anxiety. 63%. 44% of teens report persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness. This is a hard time. With the pandemic, with the po political stuff, with the war, it's tough. And, and you as a congregation perhaps are feeling some anxiety understanding that your pastor is going to be going. Right? Where, where, does, where do we go with this anxiety? I find, it, I find it fascinating that Peter closes this passage by talking about anxiety. And put yourself in their shoes. Again, we don't have to strain our imaginations very much if we think of the folks in Ukraine that are being displaced. You're, you're moved out of your country by force had to be very anxious, right? What does Peter say to them about their anxiety? He talks to them about church government. I think that's, that, that does a couple things. That, that not only is fascinating, but it tells us that church government is not just for nerds, you know, who think about polity and study the BCO, if, uh, you know, the book of church order. If you don't know what that is, probably that's good. Right? No, polity, church government, is for your good. And Peter says, 
casting all your cares. How do you humble yourself? It's a, it's a participle that tells us what to do, how to be humble, I guess you might say. Humble yourselves by casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. God cares for you. And he has provided the source of relief of your anxiety by giving government in the church is what Peter is saying. Cast your cares on him who cares for you. And this message of government, of leadership in the church of God is to be a comfort to us, like David says. There's a quote in the, in the bulletin that from St. Augustine, the fourth slash fifth century African church father. You can turn and look at that if you wish. It's a famous quote. It's the beginning of his confessions. And he wrote this in a very anxious time. The, the Roman Empire was falling. The German, Germanic peoples were at the gate ready to destroy. And where does Augustine go with his anxiety? He says... Man, being a part of your creation, desires to praise you. In other words, you were made to praise God. He says, you move us to delight in praising you, for you have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our hearts are going to be restless until they rest in him. And how do our hearts rest in him? That's trust in the shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep. Trust in him. This is what is said by Solomon in Psalm 127. For those of us who are concerned about this church and its establishment in the near future, Solomon says in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers uh, who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to rest late, eating the bread of anxious toil. What's the source for anxiety? Trusting in the shepherd who he says gives to his beloved sheep. We all need to trust him. Our hearts will be restless until we can. He is the great shepherd of all. He gives gifts to us. He gives a charge to us, a call to us. And I'll pray for us in a second that this message will give us hope. That he is providing for you. He cares for you. He loves you. He wants you to lay in green pastures and drink and feast on the best. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray for this congregation as they are about to install two new elders. I pray for these men that you would... Give them a weighty sense of what is about to happen. To help them to take these vows willingly, not under compulsion. I pray for all the leaders of the church that they would be humble and they would avoid the domineering, the shameful gain that we're warned against and do the job of shepherds that we've heard about today. And Lord, I pray for all of us that you would help us to trust in you and your provision for the church and for our lives that we would find our rest in the only place it can find it, in you. 
and in trusting you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.